They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? There they are in great terror, where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones with him who encamps against you. He puts them to shame, for God has rejected them. Amen. <clears throat> so we're... Uh if you are in fifth grade or younger, there is junior church. So fifth grade or younger, please go with uh, Mandy over here. Oh, now you have to listen to the sermon. I'm sorry. This particular, <laughs> I really am a joke sometimes. I know. God loves me. Thank goodness, because I don't think many other people do. Um, we're, uh, that's all I need. So uh, we're in our sermon series on the doctrines, and today we are talking about the doctrine of sin. This is doctrine number five. And I'm going to let you know, in every single uh, appointment that I've been in, I have preached through the doctrines in one way, shape, or form uh, pretty early on in my time in the appointment, just so that... Uh, we reiterate to the congregation what the Salvation Army believes, but then also my personal uh, interpretation of what the Salvation Army believes. And I'm not going to lie, it's usually uh, around Doctrine 5, after this particular sermon, that I don't normally see a couple of faces the next week. Uh, because this is, if you're ranking the doctrines sort of in harshness or in bold language, uh, this and the last doctrine are sort of uh, the most aggressive in their tone, if you, uh, and, and we'll get to what I mean in just a second. Uh, this is our fifth doctrine. It says this, We believe that our first parents were created in a state of innocency, but by their disobedience they lost their purity and happiness, and that in consequence of their fall, all men have become sinners, totally depraved, and as such are justly exposed to the wrath of God. It doesn't fill you with warm and fuzzy feelings, yes? Like, if we're just being honest, this particular doctrine does not light up your face with a smile and go, oh, that just makes me feel good. Man, you guys are not responsive today. It doesn't fill you with warm and fuzzy feelings, does it? There we go. All right. Again, for those that don't know, here's the secret to my sermon. If you don't answer back, I'm just going to keep repeating the points. If you answer back, we move on. It's like a game. Think of it like a game. You win by getting out of here, okay? Doesn't mean that the content isn't good. I'm just saying if, you, if I don't think you're getting it, I'm going to hammer it home until I think you get it because it's important, right? So we believe that our first parents were created in a state of innocency, but by their disobedience they lost their purity and happiness and that in consequence of their fall, all men have become sinners totally depraved and as such justly exposed to the wrath of God. This is the doctrine of sin. It's what we as the Salvation Army believe about sin and what we believe, uh, it, how it affects our life. And so we're going to begin here uh, with one of the first sentences. That is the sentence of creation. We believe that our first parents were created in a state 
of innocency. And so we're going to start with the fact that God created everything perfect. Uh, if you read scripture and uh, you uh, uh, pick up a Bible and you open it up to the very first chapter of that Bible, you're going to read about God lovingly and powerfully creating the universe and creating it in a perfect manner. You're going to read how God uh, uh, created and separated light from the darkness, and God went, oh man, that's good. And then, then God separated the waters above from the, 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 the heavens, and he went, man, that, that's good. And on the third day, he separated the, the dry waters, oh, sorry, the dry land from the waters, and he went, Man, that's good. And then, he, then he, he, he filled the heavens with things, sun, light, moon, stars, uh, so that we would know the days, years, and the seasons. And then he went, man, that's good. And then, then he created uh, uh, the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, and he filled uh, the seas with life, and he went, man, that's good. And then on, on day six, he created all the other living animals and said, man, that's good. And then he, then he said, I'm going to create mankind. And he created Adam out of the dust of the earth. And he created Adam in his image. And in fact, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, uh, created him male and female. He created them And then he said, man, I'm real good. And so God created everything good and perfect. And the image of God that he created is something that in the Christian church we call the Imago Dei, and it literally translates to the image of God. Every person on this planet, doesn't matter their race, doesn't matter their socioeconomic status, it doesn't matter their education level, it doesn't matter if anything, they were created in the image of God. Human beings are created in the image and likeness of God, which means every life, no matter how small, no matter how large, no matter how big or small, it doesn't matter, every life has a value attached to it. It doesn't matter what country you're born in. It doesn't matter how you were born. You, as an image bearer of the holy God of the universe, have value placed on you. But that, unfortunately, leads us to the continuation of the story. Now, if you were reading the Bible and you decided you were going to do an interesting intellectual exercise and say, I am going to... Uh, not read any of the Bible that mentions sin. Just as an exercise. I'm going to remove sin out of the Bible and I'm going to read it. You would have exactly four chapters. Two chapters at the beginning and two chapters at the end in the book of Revelation. Every other chapter in the Bible touches on sin in some way, shape, and form, either uh, the effects of sin, how to deal with sin, God's righteous response to sin, our response to God because of our sin. Sin uh, pervades the rest of the story of Scripture after the second book of Genesis. And what we see is that Adam and Eve, uh, uh, in the Garden of Eden, sinned. And so what we see is that that image of God that was in us, like a mirror or a window, 
that reflected God was shattered through the consequence of sin. So I want you to, to uh, go with me on this. It's a little bit of a, a, it is an illustration, so it's sort of flowery language. But if you think of the image of God in you like that of a mirror, when, when you walk up to a mirror, you see the reflection, but it's not you. That thing doesn't have knowledge, it doesn't have consciousness. It's your reflection in the same way we reflected the image of God in us. And when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, that image was shattered. It's still in us, but it's no longer the correct representation of God. Are are you with me on that? I can go on. Yes, there we go. Yeah, you keep it moving, buddy. Just you keep it moving. If everyone else is not answering, you keep it moving. And this is what God said in Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. Then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now at least he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat it forever. He is going to be removed from the garden. For some reason, the rest of that scripture isn't in my PowerPoint, but that's okay. And so what happened is Adam and Eve sinned. Um, Now, uh, Adam and Eve ate the fruit. And I often get a question. What is the fruit that they ate? I'm glad you asked. It was a mango. You know how I know? Because after Adam and Eve ate the fruit, God looked down and went, hey, where did mango? (laughs) One of my favorite jokes. And I really only get to use it during one of these types of sermons, so mm, it's what I like to do. The point wasn't the fruit. The point was the disobedience. God said, don't do this. And what what the serpent did, what Satan did, is what Satan always does. He comes up and he says, did God really say that? Did God really mean that? Uh, I I mean, I believe in spiritual warfare. I believe in the power uh, of spiritual warfare. But I also believe that as Christians, sometimes we give Satan a little bit too much credit and a little too much power that he doesn't actually get from Scripture. Uh, one of the things that Scripture says very clearly is that uh, power belongs to God. So even when you're reading through the book of Revelation, it says that God appointed the serpent or appointed the devil or appointed the dragon to do certain things at certain times. In the book of Job, when uh, Satan comes to Jesus uh, to, to God and says, hey God, uh, he, only, he only worships you because you've blessed him, it says that God gave Satan then permission to uh, test and uh, test uh, Job. Uh, and, and then in, in certain other places, uh, it always says that the power that Satan gets is a direct, uh, God grants it to him for a season, okay? And the reason I'm bringing this up is because a lot of the times we as Christians give Satan a little bit too much power over our choices than, than we, than we want to take accountability for. See, instead of me saying, hey, I'm a sinner and I messed up, we say, oh, it was Satan's fault. He made me do it. I was driving down the road. I got a flat tire. I was late for work, and it was the third time I was late, so they fired me. It was Satan's fault. No, you got a flat tire, but you'd also been late to work three times, which is about personal accountability. And so a lot of times we as Christians give Satan too much power. So when we see Satan show up in the book of Genesis, he comes to Eve and he says, did God really say that? Did God really say you mustn't eat from any tree? Didn't he, didn't he actually say that you can eat from any tree? Didn't, didn't he say that? Well, maybe he said that, but maybe what he really meant was, do you think Satan doesn't 
do the exact same thing today? Because 2,000 years, uh, give or take, after that particular temptation of Eve in the garden, uh, uh, Jesus goes into the desert to be tempted by Satan. And you know what Satan does to Jesus? He actually starts with a, a very similar question. Did God really say that? See, Jesus had just come out of his baptism. He had just come from uh, the Jordan where John the Baptist had, had baptized him and the heavens opened up. We, we, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the Trinity. The heavens opened up, uh, a voice boldly declared from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And the uh, dove came down from heaven and the Holy Spirit rested and infilled on Jesus. And he is bold, emboldened and he goes out into the wilderness and you turn the page uh, of the chapter and Jesus goes out into the wilderness And the first thing that Satan says, if you are the son of God, then turn these stones into bread. The first temptation was not turn the stones into bread. The first temptation was Satan saying to Jesus, are you really the son of God? Even though God had just said that in the previous chapter. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And Satan says, are you really the son of God? Do you think that Satan has changed his attack 2,000 years after that? Do you not think that Satan comes to each and every one of us and says, man, do you really think God could love you? Look at you. Look at how many times you mess up. Look at the things you do wrong. Look at the way that you get angry at the Starbucks barista when she burns your coffee. Could God really love you for that? And so Satan doesn't come with us with this uh, come at us with this tremendous power it's not like the hollywood movies where you see someone's head spinning around and pea soups flying out of their mouth and levitating it's not scenes from the exodus exodus will exorcist it's a lot more subtle than that it's satan coming to you and making you doubt who you are and your identity in christ jesus which is a beloved child of him now we're going to be here a while because none of that was in my notes Sorry about that. The man was created in a state of innocence, meaning that he was born without sin, meaning there was no sin in their life. So Adam and Eve were sinless. And so when Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, she set in motion an action that is that consequences would ripple throughout all of human history. Now listen, I have listened to preachers who say it was Eve's fault that she gave into sin and then tempted her husband. Now, I'm going to break a little something down for you. In, a, in, a, in the chapter beforehand, God gave Adam dominion over everything and put him in charge of everything and set up a structure in place, which means Adam had responsibility in the situation. When Satan came to tempt Eve, do you know where Adam was? You know, he wasn't in the den watching football. Scripture says that he was there. So when Satan is tempting Eve, what should Adam have done as the person who received the instructions direct from God saying, don't eat of this. Adam should have stepped up and said, don't listen to him, he's lying. Eve was tempted. Eve made a mistake. But a lot of times in Christian culture, we put all of the blame and responsibility on the fall on Eve when the reality is 90% of that blame is on Adam. You might disagree with my statistics, I don't care, I made them up. 90% is what I'm sticking with. Because he was there. 
God said to Adam, don't eat the, from the tree. He said to Adam, uh, it's going to cause you to die. He said to Adam, uh, you are over everything. And so Adam sat there and he watched Eve eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then when Eve offered it to Adam, did he not have the choice to say, no, I don't think so. I think I'm going to go with God on this one. Their actions would set in motion consequences that would ripple throughout all of human history. And the act of disobedience from Adam and Eve introduced sin into the line of Adam. And God sent Adam and Eve from the garden so they would not eat from the tree of life and live forever. And it brings us to this statement. You and I, as humans, are born with sin in our lives. What we read in Psalm 51, 5 is this. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Scripture, not only in this, but in, in a couple of other scriptures, says clearly that you and I were sinful from before our birth. We were conceived in sin and in iniquity. Sin is an inherent part of the human condition. Um, and what this means for us in a very practical way is that there, there are two types of sin. Uh, there, there's the sin of commission, right? Uh, means you commit something, means you do something. So uh, as an example, I get angry at someone, I walk up and I slap them across the face. Sinful, yes? I've committed a sin. I've been violent, I've gotten angry, I have committed a sin. So, so everyone's kind of familiar with the sin of commission. If you, uh, if you uh, know that something is wrong and you do it, then uh, uh, you are committing a sin. If, if you read Scripture and Scripture says, hey, don't lie, and you go out and you start lying, you're committing a sin. We're all familiar with that type of sin. But the one that we don't talk about a lot is the sin of, uh, is the, the sin of omission. And so, so this one's really interesting. In fact, in the book of James, chapter 4, verse 17, it says this, Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is a sin. A lot of people are under this impression that if I just go, you know what, I, I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. I'm just, not gonna, I'm just not going to enforce my opinion on someone else. It's my beliefs. It's my personal belief. I'm just going to live with that. And I'm not going to tell anyone anything about this. And it's fine. I'll just sit here. And what Scripture says is that's a sin of omission. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him is a sin. If you know that something is wrong, as the other TSA is fond of saying, if you see something, say something. The, the security people at the airport. If you see something, say something. Because Scripture says that if you see something and don't, you're sinning. Sin is not doing what we know God wants us to do. There's a lot of definitions of sin out there. A lot of them is, uh, one of the popular ones is missing the mark. If you think of a, uh, someone who goes out shooting or someone who is in archery, and they set up a, a target over in the corner and you, you either shoot at it or in some way, and, and there's a bullseye right in the center and you, you, you miss completely. And, and that's, a lot of the time, is the, that's the definition of sin. Sin missing the mark. What, what I find interesting about sin is that all sin starts in the heart. 
Sin starts in the heart and then goes outward from there. It starts in the way that we think. It starts in the heart and then then invades the thoughts and then we don't keep those thoughts captive and that thought then goes uh, out and our sins become actions. And what sin really is, I mean, missing the mark is a good is a good definition of sin, but but perhaps we can define it even a little more simply. Separ- uh, sin is the separation of man from God through our own actions. It's through our own actions, our own intentions. And what I find interesting about sin is that is that sin makes us blind to our true needs. What we do is we start ranking things and we start saying, you know, what I need is this. And God says, no, you don't need that. I, I, I'm providing all things for you. Um, no, 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 God, but I need this. And we start pursuing things and things become more important than God. And we start going, no, God, you don't understand. I need this in my life. No, God, I don't, I don't want that. I, I don't want to do what you're saying. I want this. I want to have the money. I want to have the house. I want to have the white picket fence. I want my football team to always win the Super Bowl. Maybe that one's not a sin. Because, you know, sometimes it would be nice. But sin makes us blind to our true needs. Do you know what each one of us truly needs? God. I wish it could be more complicated than that. I wish it could be more in-depth than that. But if you want to break it down to its simplest, purest form, and without any expansion, our true needs, you and I, what we need is God, which means if the definition of sin is separation of man from God, that what sin does is it takes away what we truly need. And then something that God touched on in the book of Genesis is that it cause, sin causes spiritual death. There's a direct correlation with Christians not keeping sin under control in their own lives through the power of the Holy Spirit and their faith walk. When you don't take sin captive when it is rampant in your life, it directly affects the way that you walk with Jesus. And I, I, I honestly, this is not me um, uh, telling, uh, yelling at you, saying you're all sinners. This, this is me included in this one too. Uh, sometimes the sin of pride in our lives, when we think we know better than everyone else, well, it, it, it seeps in and suddenly we think, oh man, I don't need to do it that way. I can do it this way. Some people say, oh, you know, I don't need to go to church. Uh, I've got a relationship with Jesus. That's all I need, even though Jesus said don't give up meeting together as uh, some of you are inclined to do, even though Jesus says in Scripture that getting together in the fellowship of believers helps us in our faith. And Scripture says that as iron sharpens iron, so do men of faith sharpen each other with the word of God. Even though Scripture again and again says you actually need the community and fellowship of other believers in your life. Some people say, you know what, I can figure this all out for myself. I don't need church. And what sin leads to is this point in our doctrine, the disobedience. Our first parents were created in the uh, state of innocency, but by their disobedience. St. Augustine, one of the great church fathers, said this in his book, Confessions. Sin comes when we take the perfectly natural desire or longing or ambition and try desperately to fulfill it without God. 
Not only is it sin, it is a perverse distortion of the image of the Creator in us. All these good things and all our security are rightly found only and completely in Him. Sin arises when things that are minor good are pursued as though they were the most important goals in life. If money or affection or power are sought in a disproportionate, obsessive way, then sin occurs, and that sin is magnified when, for these lesser goals, we fail to pursue the highest good and the finest goals. God is the highest good, and what we need to do with our lives is to pursue him. And what sin does is it takes these little things in our lives and says they're more important than God. And so these things aren't necessarily bad things. Loving a sports team isn't a bad thing. But if you're one of these people who know more about the statistics of your football team than you know about Holy Scripture, there is an imbalance if you're one of these people that know more uh, about a certain any topic than you know about the person and work of Jesus Christ, there is an imbalance. I, I went to a men's camp in the Northwest Division and a person was telling me, a gentleman, that he found it real difficult to memorize Scripture. And I, I can sympathize. Not everyone has uh, the ability to memorize Scripture. But then later on in, the, in, a, in a different conversation, he was telling me about a quarterback that, he had, that his favorite football team had some 20 years ago and was able to name his passer rating and name his win-loss ratio and how many wins he was able to have at home versus when he was on the road, and on and on and on it went. And I didn't say anything to it at the time, but it was always this illustration in my mind that if you know more about that than you know of Scripture, is there not an imbalance? And I don't know what it is in your life. I don't know if you have the imbalance in your life. I always like to use this as an, just as a way of self-reflection. Is, is there something in your life that is more important than Jesus? Sin arises when things that are minor good are pursued as though they were the most important goals in life. The Bible says this, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. David, when he wrote, this psalm said, against you and you only have I sinned. It brings me to an interesting point it, that all sin primarily is against the God of the universe. If I walk up and I slap that person that I was slapping, I don't know who it was, but I was slapping him. Primarily my sin is not against the person that I hit. Primarily my sin is against God. One of the reasons why is because that person had the Imago Dei on their life, the image of God and the creator of the universe. And I defiled that image by striking it. Just, just to, as an example. And so what the book of Psalms says is against you and you only have I sinned. When it says that behold I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me, the meaning of the scripture is simple. 
You and I are sinners from the moment that we are born. We are sinners from the time of conception, which means that we are sinners by nature, which means if you were given the choice between doing what is easy and what is right, you are going to choose what is easy every time without the power of the Holy Spirit transforming your life because it is your nature to sin. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In today's society, what we believe and what we're told by so-called experts, and I pick on them, everything from Dr. Phil to Oprah, is that basically we're good people. You're a good person and you basically want to do good things and that's fine. You don't need any more morality in your life than that. As long as you just want to do good, you're fine. But the reality of Scripture, it says, is that there is no one who does good. Here in Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. And no one does good, not even one. I want you to understand this in the full scope of eternity, that God looked down from heaven, from his position of eternity, on the entire stretch of humankind, from Adam and Eve to the very last moment of recorded time. And from that moment, he looked down to try and find a single person who is a good person. And you know what he found? Not even one. There is no one who does good, not even one. Which is why Scripture declares that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God because we are all by our very nature sinners. Which leads us to the last point of this particular sermon, and that is wrath. Now, a lot of times when we talk about wrath, what we're talking about can get misconstrued. And a lot of people, when they they hear the word wrath, they think, oh man, that's just God having a temper tantrum. That's just God uh, uh, lashing out like a petulant school child. That's that's God saying, oh man, man, that's my soccer ball. I'm taking it and going home. And and really, the best way of defining wrath uh, is the expression of his holiness. So when you read the word wrath in Scripture, it is not God just mindlessly lashing out like a toddler. It is God having a righteous response to sin because we just read that uh, against you and you only have I sinned, which means all of your sin is against God. So wrath is God's righteous response to that sin. Are you with me on that? Do you understand that? That is a key point in understanding the doctrine of wrath, that it is God's righteous response, not an anger response. And so when you and I, uh, if you follow this thought to conclusion, you and I from birth, from conception, have sin in our lives and wrath is God's righteous response to sin. You and I are what uh, what Scripture describes as children of wrath, which means you and I are subject to the wrath of God. Is my logic tracking so far? You with me so far? Good. I got one in the front row. I don't know, but um, I'll stick with it. And so if the wrath of God is his righteous response, it means that you and I, under sin, should be subjects to that wrath. And that's where I usually lose people, and they say, you know what, I'm not coming back. But here's what Scripture says. It says, 
that there is the wrath of God, the righteous response for sin. And it needs to go somewhere. Uh, The punishment for sin needs to be taken. And Jesus Christ took that punishment on the cross. Scripture says that while Jesus was on the cross of Calvary, the wrath of God was poured out on him instead of those who believe. I want to be real clear about this. The wrath of God was poured out on Christ for Christians, not everyone, which means if you were not a Christian, you were still subject to wrath. Again, not a popular statement. It's not me judging someone. It's not me condemning anyone. It's me simply stating a scriptural position. You have two choices. You can be a son or daughter of wrath, or you can be a son or daughter of God. It is a binary state. It's not, man, every worldview has a certain point, and you can believe what you want to believe. It's not some wishy-washy hippie thing in the cloud, lollipops and rainbows type of philosophy. Scripture is fairly clear and fairly black and white on the issue. We exist in two states. As sinners, we are subjects to wrath. Or as the adopted sons of daughters, we are adopted into the love and kingdom of heaven. And so this is a terrible place to leave a sermon. But that's exactly what I'm going to do. Because next week we're going to talk about the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But what I want, as we we close today, is I want you to sit in the weight of that binary choice on our lives. Is it, are you a child of wrath or are you a child of God? Now for many of you, thankfully I know that you're Christians and you are children of God. And so we'll get to more as we move on in these doctrines. There are doctrines of, uh, of justification and, and the doctrine of salvation. It's coming. This sermon, like I said, encapsulated in itself. It's not very fun, but I think it's necessary. Because if you don't understand the wrath of God, I don't believe you can put appropriate weight on the love of God. When you don't know... Uh, this. When you know what the punishment should be, when you were a kid growing up and you knew that when you broke a rule, you were going to get a hiding, when your dad was going to hit you with a belt, I know we don't do that anymore. I was hit on the occasion with a belt. I'm perfectly fine. It's fine. Okay. But when you knew that was coming, and instead I remember distinctly one time my dad instead sat me down, and instead of hitting me with the belt, he explained why he was disappointed in me. I then appreciated the love that he had for me. And so sometimes I don't think that we can appropriately weigh the love of God without understanding the wrath of God. And so as we close our time together today, I just want to let you sit just a little bit. And so 
if you don't know Jesus and you're, you're under this wrath, there is good news. You can know Jesus and you become a child of God. It is not too late. As long as you are still drawing breath, it is not too late. But if you are a child of God, I want you to sit in the moment and now understanding fully the wrath of God. I want you to contemplate how much more that means of the love of God in your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you today. Each one of us, Lord, have come from a place of knowing you and being sinners. Lord, I pray right now that as we sit in this place, we can contemplate fully, Lord, whether we're children of wrath or children of grace. And Lord, if we're children of grace, impress on us through the power of the Holy Spirit what it means that you no longer appoint us to suffer wrath, that instead we can enjoy eternity with you. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in your son's precious name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. My guitar player is gone, so if you'd like to